Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning, a podcast where we, we nerd out about ML, AI, data science, you name it. This week, we have a really special guest, an author who has written a number of books that try to explain incredibly complex topics to, uh, I, w- I wouldn't say it's just a young audience. I found your like, samples of your work to be very fascinating and sort of distilling down these complex topics into something that is approachable for a layperson, but also for kids to get them excited and really explain to the topics. And we have you on the show because you did a topic on our world. So yeah, let's get into it. Uh, so yeah, I'm Ben, one of your co-hosts, joined by Michael Burke. Hi, everyone. Glad to be back. And Catherine, if you could uh, just introduce yeah. yourself. Yes, so I'm Catherine Hulick. And as Ben said, I write about science and technology for kids mainly. And I've been doing that for over 15 years now. I started out writing for some kids' magazines and went on to write. I was a, I'm a journalist mainly, but I've also written books, educational books, as well as you know books you might find in a bookstore. They aimed mainly at kids in middle school and high school, but a summer for a little bit younger. But yeah, you can find me. My website's catherinehulick.com and I'm on Twitter at khulick. Awesome. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. And I was wondering just how one gets into writing kids' books, especially (laughs) about technical material. Yeah, I mean, I wound up, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer from a very young age. You know, I used to, from as long as I can remember, I wanted to be an author when I grew up. So I'm, I'm lucky that I got to do what I dreamed of doing. And figuring out that I wanted to write for kids was actually the first thing I realized out of college. I got some, I was looking at some kids' magazines and I'm like, I could do this and I really want to do this. I, I just love how curious kids are. I feel like when I was 10 years old, I really didn't want to get any older. And like some part of me, I don't think really ever did. Like, I just kind of really connect with the questions kids ask and how curious they are and how excited they get about things. And that's why I like writing for them because they're just a great audience. And I started out, I did an internship with a kids magazine group and I got to know the science editor really well. And that's actually how I got my first published piece is I wrote for her and I wrote for that magazine. I still write for that magazine group actually. And once you have a few things published, it's a lot easier to get more things published because you can send those out and, you know, people see that you can do it and, and they'll give you more work. And actually, science writing for kids, there's it's a pretty niche area. There's actually quite a lot of demand for it. So I've had really steady work. I write for Science News for Students. That's an excellent online resource for um, teachers use it in their classrooms, but parents can use it too with their kids. They just basically write about science news, but aimed at a young audience. And I write for Muse Magazine now and Front Vision, which is a Chinese language publication. I don't have to write in Chinese. They translate it, (laughs) thankfully. Yeah, so I write for a lot of, and I've done a lot of books. This is my most recent book, Welcome to the Future. 
So this is about all different kinds of technology and how it could change the world in the future. So I open each chapter with a science fiction scenario, like super intelligence ruling the world is one of them. There's robots doing everything for us is another one. And then I go into, is that actually possible? How might it be possible? And then what do we actually want to happen? That's really the heart of the book is what do kids want for their future? What are the ethical implications of some of these technologies? And how can we make sure that they're beneficial to everybody? So that this is the book that just came out in November. 2021. So that's the one I'm most excited about right now. So writing about the super intelligence slash yes. <laughs> the general zeitgeist seems to think uh, people that aren't in this field equate the term artificial intelligence with that sci-fi super yes. intelligence. Like, so you say in the intro to one of your chapters where you're like, hey, coming into this, into writing this book and talk, tackling these topics, yeah. I had this this conception of what I thought this was. And then you went through the process of learning it and yeah. getting a, a deep understanding of, oh, this is actually what this is. And it's it's not what people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what that process was like? I mean, you've had to do it, obviously, from, for 15 years, learning new complex yes. topics in order to explain yeah. them to mm-hmm. a novice audience. But I really want to hear what that process was for what Michael and I do. Right. Right. So I actually, I've written about tons of different science and technology topics, you know, everything from AI to robots to space to biology and medicine. But AI really is where my heart is. Like that is where I started getting into this. Like as I wrote in my piece for The Gradient, I picked up Gödel Escher Bach when I was in high school and just like I never looked back. Like I just have like devoured every every popular science book about AI and robots for as long as I can remember. So I mean, for me, that is really what I keep coming back to. And that this book, actually, originally, I wanted it to be just about AI, but I couldn't quite get a publisher to go for that. So I wound up adding a lot of other technology in there, too. But for me, I mean, I have been learning about it for quite a long time. I have never been a developer myself, though. So that makes it a little harder. And so I have made some assumptions along the way that I've learned out turn learn later were wrong. And I guess the big one for me was I a lot of people like to compare neural networks to the brain and they're called neural networks. Like they have artificial neurons. So I mistakenly understood for a long time that it was a lot more based on the brain than it really is. Like I just didn't realize how little people actually know about the brain, first of all. So if you want even wanted to build something like the brain, you don't even know how to do that because you don't know how the brain does what it does. So there's that side of it. And then there's the other side of like we just can't can we even build something like the brain, even if we did know how it does what it does? Because, you know, we just may not have the right hardware or the amount of computing power to do that. So there's just such a disconnect there. You know, I thought that we were building these things that were a lot like the brain, but just maybe not big enough yet or not complex enough yet. But in fact, it's worlds, worlds away. And that's something that I try to get across now whenever I write about this, that yes, we may call them neural networks, but they're not neurons and they're not really like the brain very much at all. It's like a loose inspiration, but that's not what it's doing. And I guess the other thing that was a really important realization for me was that they're not even learning in the way that a person is learning. Like, yes, it's called learning and it is learning in some sense, but it's not understanding. It's not able to put together concepts in the way that people do or any biological brain does. Like probably even my dog can learn things better and in a different way than an AI model. And figuring out that it's a pattern matching statistical technique is really what helped me get make that leap is like you're you're taking this data and you're matching your new data to your old data. You learn a whole bunch of data, you do all this statistical magic on it, and then you can match new data and be like, okay, 
I've seen this before and here's what it's most similar to. And we're going to pop out an answer based on that. And so once I kind of grasped that, I was able to explain it a lot better to, to my audience, why it's not a brain and why what it's doing is so different from what you're doing when you learn something or think about something. Yeah, I've had this that topic of discussion with people before mm-hmm. of people in business who are like, hey, you said you you built this thing to identify what things are in a picture. Mm-hmm. And why can't it learn this new thing? Mm-hmm. Like, doesn't it understand? Yeah. We're <laughs> from the outside looking into this field yeah. of study. Humans want to personify everything. Yes. Uh, it's just how we socially work. So we can think of this this thing that seems intelligent because it can do this one task, arguably, particularly for image classification, if, if it's trained well. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, it, it's not smart. It just optimized itself well for that mathematical function that it's, that it's trying to calculate. Right. And it's the reason I asked that first question about learning the process is because that's a, a technique that some of our listeners have to go through as working as a data scientist or an ML engineer in mm-hmm. business and in industry is going through that that discussion with an executive explaining, hey, this is what it what it can't do. And here's an analogy to use. I'm straight up going to use some of the analogies in, in that chapter of years that I read because yeah, I think they're ahead. great about explaining uh-huh. what this actually is. Yeah. And it's definitely worthwhile to have a conversation at that level instead of saying down way too deep into the tech weeds that right. the audience won't get. Right. And I really think that that's what I can offer to you know developers out there is a way to think about this and talk about this that will help people who aren't experts. Like, Because a lot of times when you're in the weeds of doing this, you don't realize what people don't understand or what people need to understand before they're going to really be on the same level as you. And I think that's, yes, maybe I write for kids, but what I write is also accessible to anyone. And honestly, what a lot of people misunderstand about writing for kids is they think that you have to dumb things down or explain everything. And that's really not it at all, because kids are really, really smart. They just don't have as as much experience in the world, and they're also way less patient than adults. So the real key to writing for kids is to keep their attention. you got to keep it interesting. And that's really the key to communicating with adults, too. You've got to make it... not just not just interesting, but relevant, like relevant to their world. Like, what do they care about? You've always got to think about what your audience cares about. And I don't really know what executives care about, but maybe hopefully you guys do if you're talking to them. But, you know, you got to figure out what they care about. And that's where you have to kind of focus your energy. So that's, you know, some of the analogies that I use when I'm talking about AI with kids. You know, I try to think about things that are relevant to them. I use games a lot, like the AI that have been trained to play games, because that's something that's interesting to kids and they can grasp. You know, I use, I I do talk about the brain, but as I said, I'm very careful not to compare AI to the brain too directly, but that is another way that you can help understand, you know, what's going on here. But yeah, that's what I always try to keep it relevant and keep it interesting. That's way more important than making it simple or or dumbed down or whatever. And I hate that phrase because I don't dumb things down. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And I've seen so many technical people try to present technical topics to non-technical people. Mm-hmm. So uh, engineer to a stakeholder and they can throw math on a slide. They can throw whole paragraphs on a slide like and just pace poorly, use the exact same tone of voice. There's so many presentation tricks that are super useful when presenting and keeping people's attention. And also you made a really good point about ensuring that you're providing value. Mo- a lot of people don't really care. (laughs) It's sad to say, but (laughs) um, like we find it really cool. And also because we have so much context into this field, because we use it all the time, intricacies are relevant and valuable, but oftentimes people just want to know the outcome and they don't really care how it works. Like, will it help me? Will it hurt Mm -hmm. me? 
and when and how. So I think that's a, yeah. a really good point about providing value to non-technical people. Yeah. And the, the thing I always say is you, you've got to be passionate about it yourself. Like that's, that's catching when you're really excited about something. Like I always, when I'm starting a piece, I think about what makes me say, wow. Cause I, sometimes I have to write about things that I find boring. AI, I don't find boring at all, but sometimes I know like I had to write something about some, sometimes I, I don't know when I have to write medical stuff, I don't find medical stuff that exciting, but sometimes I have to write it. And <laughs> it's like, I got to really think hard, you know, what makes me say, wow, about this. And when I find that, that's when I can start writing. Like that's because I've got to be excited about it myself. If I'm not, my readers are, they're, they're 12 years old. They're going to go off, you know, and they're going to be on whatever it is now, uh, Twitch or whatever. <laughs> they're they're going to be gone in seconds. They're not going to stick around. So yeah, I need to, I need to be excited myself in order to get them excited and keep their attention. Yeah. And that shouldn't be hard. This field is pretty awesome and it's yes. moving very fast. Mm -hmm. Like five years ago, it, it was completely different from how it does now. Yeah. That was something that was exciting for me writing the chapter on AI. I Dolly came out while I was working on it and I was you know, I had actually written in my chapter that, you know, AI can't combine concepts to like create something new. And then I saw Dali and I went on and I was like, hey, I can make a penguin made of carrots. Like it can do that. It can take these, these like, it can take this bizarre phrase and it can draw that. And I'm like, well, I got to change that sentence in my book because, you know, now it can do this thing that I thought it couldn't do. And it was, it's just, it blows my mind. And I mean, even though it's not understanding anything, I still think some of the ways that these computer, you know, minds to risk <laughs> giving the wrong idea again, the way they work, I think does, it's so different from how human minds work that it actually can help our creativity. It can make us more creative and more capable in so many ways. I don't want that to be a negative thing that they work so differently than the brain does. Like that's, I want to get kids excited about that, that this is a, they have a lot to offer us by thinking about things so differently. Like one of the Dolly images, it was a shark playing chess. And I noticed that, you know, I think most people, if you ask them to draw a shark playing chess, they'd put the chess pieces in the shark's flipper, like, because that's its hand, right? But some of the pictures that Dolly drew put the pieces, like, had, had, like, the shark hovering over the board with its tail, like, it was playing the game with its tail. And I'm like, well, maybe that would be a more natural way for a shark to play. And one had it, like, with its teeth right up next to the board. And I'm like, well, maybe that would be more how a shark would play. And it's, those are things that a person might not think of, but the computer did, because it doesn't have these concepts that we have about how hands work or how chess works. So it can do things that are really out there that might make us think differently about the world. And I've found that that extends not just to interesting cutting edge things like that. Yeah. Like applications like that are really fun. Mm -hmm. And people have done like, hey, I want to create art based on yeah. thematic. Like I'm going to feed in an image that has nothing to do with this particular epoch of art mm -hmm. that's been created and generate a picture of my dog like Jackson Pollock would yeah. paint it and it'll <laughs> spit something out that that uh, adversarial network will yeah. do that. And those are cool. But those insights about what you, what you said that really resonated mm -hmm. with me and something that I've had a conversation with business before and stakeholders is, hey, we can gain insights in ways that we can't think. And that's right. one of the selling points it for is, yeah. statistical inference mm -hmm. of, you know, one of the most powerful algorithms that has come out over the last 15 years for business to customer and you see it on websites everywhere now or different implementations of it which is alternating least squares which is the if you have netflix you're very aware of this yeah. when you start viewing stuff 
And as it, as you have your account for a longer period of time and you start watching certain things, there's a fun little game that you can play with this as well. If you do that, create an alternate account on Netflix and select just a bunch of random stuff over a period of about two months and then compare your landing page between that random selection. You only have to watch maybe a couple of minutes of something. Mm-hmm. And then compare it to your main account and see the difference. Those recommendation engines and Netflix isn't just using ALS anymore, mm-hmm. but that was the precursor to do all that stuff. But having that conversation with the business about why this is important and how we can't actually conceptualize how to do this ourselves mm-hmm. because of inherent biases that we have. If you're talking about, okay, marketing team needs mm-hmm. to create the recommended for you. And 20 years ago, early days, days of the ideas of this, people were doing that handcrafting stuff like, oh, this we have 100 cohorts. We're going to create 100 recommendations every day. And here's what we're going to send out. And humans built those. And they were generally terrible. Mm-hmm. And you apply massive matrix factorization on a ludicrous scale. You can get these per user recommendations. But the important part of that is it it's not just the end result that you get value from. You can also look at that data and look at how the algorithm, I'm doing air quotes yeah. right now, uh, but air quote thought through that problem, Yeah. even though it's not thinking, right. it's just <laughs> utilizing right. its internal structure to say, hey, this is who our customers are. Yeah. Maybe this is what programs we should be creating in, for Netflix. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what Netflix does. Right. That's how they determine what their internal things are going to be. It's like, what do people like most? What are the the things that rank highest on these features that we've yeah. created? Yeah. So there's a lot of like interesting yeah, things. Yeah, there's a lot to and learn it, from that. And that's actually another thing I use a lot talking to kids about AI. I love the example of the recommendation engine because that's something that people interact with every day.